Section 2 of Modern Magic This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina Modern Magic by Maximilian Schell de Vere Chapter Two, Part One, Black and White Magic. Peace, the charms wound up. Macbeth. The most startling of all scenes described in Holy Writ, as far as they represent incidents in human life, is, no doubt, the mysterious interview between unfortunate King Saul and the spirit of his former patron, the prophet Samuel. The poor monarch, abandoned by his friends and forsaken by his own heart, turns in his utter wretchedness to those whom he had but shortly before put out of the land, those godless people who had familiar spirits and the wizards hard pressed by the ancient enemy of his people the philistine and unable to obtain an answer from the great god of his fathers he stoops to consult a witch a woman it seems that sedekla the daughter of the decem diabete for so philo calls her according to de Musils, had escaped by her cunning from the fate of her weird sisters and having a familiar spirit foretold the future to curious inquirers at her dwelling in endor at first she is unwilling to incur the penalty threatened in the king's decree but when the disguised monarch with a voice of authority promises her impunity she consents to bring up samuel as soon as the fearful phantom of the dread prophet appears she becomes instinctively aware of the true character of her visitor and far more afraid of the power of the living than of the appearance of the departed she cries out trembling why hast thou deceived me thou art saul then follows the appalling scene in which samuel reproves the miserable self-despairing king and foretells his death and that of his sons there can be no doubt that we have here before us an instance of genuine magic the woman was evidently capable of casting herself into a state of ecstasy in which she could at once look back into the past and forward into the future thus she beholds the great prophet not sent by god from on high as the holy fathers generally taught but according to the then prevailing belief rising from sheol the place of departed spirits and then she utters unconsciously his own words for it must not be overlooked that samuel makes no revelations but only repeats his former warnings saul learns absolutely nothing new from him he only hears the same threatenings which the prophet had pronounced twice before when the reckless king had dared to sacrifice unto god with his own hand first samuel thirteen and when he had failed to smite the amalekite as he was bidden possessed as it were by the spirit of the living samuel the woman speaks as he had spoken in his lifetime and it is only when her state of exaltation renders her capable of looking into the future also that she assumes the part of a prophetess herself and foretells the approaching doom 
of her royal visitor. That the whole dread scene was foreordained, and could take place only by the will of the Almighty, alters nothing in the character of the woman with the familiar spirit. It is a clear case of necromancy, or conjuring up of the spirits of departed persons, such as has been practiced among men from time immemorial. Among the chosen people of God, persons were found from the beginning of their history who had familiar spirits, and Moses already fulminates his severest anathemas against these wizards. Leviticus 20, 27. They appear under various aspects, as charmers, as consulters of familiar spirits, as wizards, or as necromancers. Deuteronomy 18, 11. They are charged with passing their children through the fire, with observing times, astrologers, with using enchantments, or they are said in a general way to use witchcraft. Second Chronicles 33.6 That other nations were not less familiar with the art of evoking spirits, we see, for instance, in the Odyssey, which mentions numerous cases of such intercourse with another world, and speaks of necromancers as forming a kind of close guild. In the Perseus of Aeschylus, the spirit of Darius, father of Xerxes, is called up and foretells all the misfortunes that are to befall poor Queen Atossa. The greatest among the stern Romans could not entirely shake off the belief in such magic, in spite of the matter-of-fact tendencies of the Roman mind and the vast superiority of their intelligence. A Cato and a Sulla, a Caesar and a Vespasian, all admitted with clear, unfailing perception the small grains of truth that lay concealed among the mass of rubbish then called magic. Even Christian theology has never absolutely denied the existence of such extraordinary powers over the spirits of the departed, although it has consistently attributed them to diabolic influences. In this point lies the main difference between ancient and modern magic. For the oldest magi whom we know were the wise men of Persia, called, from Ma, great, Mug, the great men of the land. They were the philosophers of their day, and if we believe the impartial evidence of Greek writers, not generally apt to overestimate the merits of other nations, they were possessed of vast and varied information. Their aim was the loftiest ever conceived by human ambition. It was, in fact, nothing less than the erection of an intellectual Tower of Babel. They devoted the labors of a lifetime and the full, well-trained vigor of their intelligence to the study of the forces of nature and the true character of all created beings. Among the latter, they included disembodied spirits, as well as those still bound up with bodies made of earth, considering with a wisdom and boldness of conception never yet surpassed, both classes as one and the same eternal creation. The knowledge thus acquired, they were, moreover, not disposed merely to store away in their memory, or to record in unattractive manuscripts. They were men of the world as well as philosophers, and looked for practical results. Here the pagan spirit shone forth unrestrained, the end and aim 
of all their restless labors was power. Their ambition was to control, by the superior prestige of their knowledge, not only the mechanical forces of nature, but also the lesser capacities of other created beings, and finally fate itself. Truly, a lofty and noble aim, if we view it, as in equity we are bound to do, from their standpoint, as men, possessing, with all the wisdom of the earth, as yet not a particle of revealed religion. It was only at a much later period that a distinction was made between white magic and black magic. This arose from the error which gradually overspread the minds of men, that such extraordinary powers, based originally only upon extraordinary knowledge, were not naturally given to men, but could only be obtained by the special favor of higher beings, with whom the owner must needs enter into a perilous league. If these were benevolent deities, the results obtained by their assistance were called white magic. If they were gods of ill repute, they granted the power to perform feats of black magic, acts of wickedness and crimes. Christianity, though it abolished the gods of paganism, maintained, nevertheless, the belief in extraordinary powers accorded by supernatural beings, and the same distinction continued to be made. Pious men and women performed miracles by the aid of angels and saints. Wicked sinners did as much by an unholy league with the evil one. The Egyptian charmer of Apulegis, who declared that no miracle was too difficult for his art, since he exercised the blind power of deities who were subject to his will, only expressed what the Iazzarone of Naples feels in our day, when he whips his saint with a bundle of reeds in order to compel him to do his bidding. Magicians did not change their doctrine. They hardly even modified their ceremonies. Their allegiance only was transferred from Jupiter to Jehovah, even as the same column that once bore the great thunderer on Olympus is now crowned by a statue of Peter Boanerges. Nor has the race of magicians ever entirely died out. We find enough notices in classic authors, whose evidence is unimpeachable, to know that the Greeks were apt scholars of the ancient magi, and transferred the knowledge they had thus obtained, and long jealously guarded, to the priests of Egypt, who in their turn became the masters of the two mightiest nations on earth. First Moses sat at their feet, till, at the age of forty, he, quote, was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, end quote and could successfully cope with their magicians and sorcerers. Then the land of the Nile fell into the hands of the Romans, and poverty and neglect drove the wise men of Egypt to seek refuge in the capital of the world, where they either lived upon the minor arts and cunning tricks of their false fate, or being converted to Christianity, infected the pure faith with their ill-applied knowledge. Certain portions of true magic survived through all persecutions and revolutions. Some precious secrets were preserved by the philosophers of later ages, and have, if we believe the statements made by trustworthy writers of every century, ever since continued into possession of Freemasons and Rosicrucians, 
others became mixed up with vile superstitions and impious practices and only exist now as the black art of so-called magicians and witches wherever magic found a fertile soil among the people it became a science handed down from father to son and such we find it still in the east indies and the orient generally when it fell into the hands of skeptics or weak feeble-minded men it degenerated with amazing speed into imposture and common jugglery what is evident about magic is the well-established fact that its ceremonies forms and all other accessories are almost infinite in variety since they are merely accidental vehicles for the will of man and real magicians know very well that the importance of such external aids is not only overrated but altogether fallacious the sole purpose of the burning of perfumes of imposing ceremonies and awe-inspiring procedures is to aid in producing the two conditions which are indispensable for all magic phenomena the magician must be excited till his condition is one resembling mental intoxication or becomes a genuine trance and the passive subject must be made susceptible to the control of the superior mind for it need not be added that the latter will all the more readily be affected the feebler his will and the more imperfect his mental vision may be by nature or may have been rendered by training and careful preparation hence it is that the magic table of the dervish the enchanted drum of the shaman the medicine bag of the indian are all used for precisely the same purpose as the ring of hecate the divining rod and the magic wand of the enchanter legend and amulet mummy and wax figure herb and stone drug and elixir incense and ointment are all but the means which the strong will of the gifted master uses in order to influence and finally to control the weaker mind thus powerful perfumes narcotic odors and anaesthetic salves are employed to produce enervation and often actual and complete loss of self-control in other cases the neophyte has to turn round and round within the magic circle from east to west till he becomes giddy and utterly exhausted it is very curious to observe how as far as these preparations go in the most distant countries and among the most different forms of society the same means are employed for the same purpose the whirling dance of the fanatic dervish is perfectly analogous to the wild raving of our indian medicine man who ties himself with a rope to a post and then whirls around it in fierce fury thus also the oldest magicians speak with profound reverence of the powers of a little herb known to botanists as hypericum perforatum l and behold in the year eighteen sixty a german author of eminence justinus kerner still taught seriously that the leaves of that plant were the best means to banish evil spirits mandrake and elder have held their own in the false faith of nations from the oldest times to our day and even now germans as well as slaves love to plant the latter everywhere in their graveyards as suggestive of the realm of spirits 
white magic, though strictly forbidden by the church in all ages, seems nevertheless to have had irresistible attractions for wise and learned men of every country. This charm it owes to the many elements of truth which are mixed up with the final error, for it aims at a thorough understanding of the mysteries of nature, and so far its purpose is legitimate and very tempting to superior minds, but only in order to obtain by such knowledge a power which holy writ expressly denies to man. When it prescribes the study of nature as being the outer temple of God, and represents all the parts of this vast edifice, from the central sun of the universe to the minutest living creation, as bound up by a common sympathy, no objection can be made to its doctrines, and even the greatest minds may fairly enroll themselves here as its pupils. But when it ascribes to this sympathy an active power, and attributes to secret names of the deity, to certain natural products, or to mechanically regulated combinations of the stars, a peculiar and supernatural effect, it sinks into contemptible superstition. Hence, the constant aim of all white magic, the successful summoning of superior spirits, for the purpose of learning from them what is purposely kept concealed from the mind of man, has never yet been reached. For it is sin, the same sin that craved to eat from the tree of knowledge. Hence also, no beneficial end has ever yet been obtained by the practices of magic, although wise and learned men of every age have spent their lives and risked the salvation of their souls in restless efforts to lift the veil of Isis. Black magic, the Kishof of the Hebrews, avows openly its purpose of forming a league with evil spirits in order to attain selfish ends, which are invariably fatal to others. And yet it is exactly here that we meet with great numbers of well-authenticated cases of success, which preclude all doubt and force us to admit the occasional efficiency of such sinful alliances. The art flourishes naturally best among the lowest races of mankind, where gross ignorance is allied with blind faith, and the absence of inspiration leaves the mind in natural darkness. We cannot help being struck here also with the fact that the means employed for such purposes have been the same in almost all ages. Readers of classic writers are familiar with the drum of Sibel. The Laplanders have, from time immemorial, had the same drum, on which heaven, hell, and earth are painted in bright colors, and reproduce in pictorial writing the letters of the modern spiritualist. A ring is placed upon the tightly stretched skin, which slight blows with a hammer cause to vibrate, and according to the apparently erratic motions of the ring over the varied figures of gods, men, and beasts, the future is revealed. The consulting savage lies on his knees, and as the pendulum between our fingers and the pencil of planchette in our hand write apparently at haphazard, but in reality under the pressure of our muscles, acting through the unconscious influence of our will, so here also the beats of the hammer only seem to be fortuitous 
but in reality are guided by the ecstatic owner. For already, Olaf Magnus, History Goth L3, Chapter 26, tells us that the incessant beating of the drum and the wild, exulting singing of the magician for hours before the actual ceremony begins cause him to fall into a state of exaltation without which he would be unable to see the future. That the drum is a mere accident in the ceremony was strikingly proved by a Laplander who delivered up his instrument of witchcraft to the pious missionary Ternias, by whom he had been converted, and who soon came to complain that even without his drum he could not help seeing hidden things, an assertion which he proved by reciting to the amazed minister all the minute details of his recent journey. Who can help? while reading of these savage magicians, recalling the familiar ring and drumstick in the left hand of the Roman Isis, statues with a drum above the head, or the rarely missing ring and hammer in the hands of the Egyptian Isis. It need hardly be added that the Indians of our continent have practiced the art with more or less success from the day of discovery to our own times. Already, Wafer, in his Description of the Isthmus of Darien, 1699, describes how Indian sorcerers, after careful preparation, were able to inform him of a number of future events, every one of which came to pass in the succeeding days. The prince of Neuwied again met a famous medicine man among the Crea Indians, whose prophecies were readily accepted by the whites, even, and of whose power he witnessed unmistakable evidence. Bonduel, a well-known and generally perfectly trustworthy writer, affirms, from personal knowledge, that among the Menominees, the medicine men not only practice magic, but are able to produce most astounding results. After beating their drum, Bonduel used to hear a heavy fall and a faint inarticulate voice, whereupon the tent of the charmer, though fifteen feet high, rose in the air and inclined first on one and then on the other side. This was the time of the interview between the medicine man and the evil spirit. Small, doll-like figures of men also were used, barely two inches long, and tied to medicine bags. They served mainly to inflame women with loving ardor, and when efficient, could drive the poor creatures to pursue their beloved for days and nights through the wild forests. Other missionaries also affirm that these medicine men must have been able to read the signs and perhaps to feel in advance the effects of the weather with amazing accuracy, since they frequently engaged to procure storms for special purposes and never failed. It is interesting to notice that according to the unanimous testimony of all writers on Indian affairs, these medicine men almost invariably find a violent and wretched death. It is not without interest to recall that the prevailing forms of the magic of our day, as far as they consist of table-moving, spirit rapping and the like have their origin among the natives of our continent the earliest notice of these strange performances appeared in the great journal of augsburg in germany algemeine zeitung 
where Andre mentioned their occurrence among Western Indians. Sargent gave us next a more detailed description of the manner in which many a wigwam or log cabin in Iowa became the scene of startling revelations by means of a clumsy table which hopped merrily about, or a half-drunk, red-skinned medium, from whose lips fell uncouth words. Spicer, Lights and Sounds, page 190. It was only in 1847 that the famous Fox family brought these phenomena within the pale of civilization. Having rented a house in Hydeville, New York, already ill-reputed on account of mysterious noises, they reduced these knockings to a kind of system, and, by means of an alphabet, obtained the important information that they were the work of a spirit, and that his name was Charles Ray. Margaret Fox transplanted the wrappings to Rochester, Catherine, only twelve years old, to Auburn, and from these two central places the new magic spread rapidly throughout the Union. Opposition and persecutions served, as they are apt to do, only to increase the interest of the public. A Mrs. Norman Culver proved, it is true, that wrappings could easily be produced by certain muscular movements of the knee and the ankle, and a committee of investigation, of which Fenimore Cooper was a member, obtained ample evidence of such a method being used. But the faith of the believers was not shaken. The moving of tables, especially, furnished to their minds new evidence of the actual presence of spirits, and soon circles were established in nearly all the northern and western states, formed by persons of education without regard to confession, who called themselves spiritualists or spiritists, and their most favored associates, media. A number of men, whose intelligence and candor were alike unimpeachable, became members of the new sect, among them a judge, a governor of a state, and a professor of chemistry. They organized societies and circles, they published journals, and several works of interest and value, and produced results which more and more strengthened their convictions. The new art met, naturally, with much opposition, especially among the ministers and members of the different churches. Some of the opponents laughed at the whole as a clever jugglery, which deserved its great success on account of the smartness of the performers. Others denounced it as a heresy and a crime. The former, of course, saw in it nothing but the hand of man, while the latter admitted the agency of spirits, but of spirits from below, and not from above. An amusing feature, connected with public opinion on this subject, was that when trade was prosperous and money abundant, spiritualism also flourished and found numerous adherents. But when business was slow, or a crisis took place, all minds turned away from the favorite pastime, and instinctively joined once more with the pious believers in the denunciation of the new magic. Thus, a kind of antagonism has gradually arisen between orthodox Christians and enthusiastic spiritualists, the controversy is carried on with great energy on both sides, and alas, to the eye of the general observer, magic is gaining ground every day. At least, its adherents 
increase steadily in numbers, and even in social weight. Tuttle, Arena of Nature Not long ago, the National Convention of Spiritualists, at their great meeting at Rochester, New York, August 1868, laid down nineteen fundamental principles of their new creed. Their doctrines are based upon the fact that we are constantly surrounded by an invisible host of spirits who desire to help us in returning once more to the Father of all things, the Great Spirit. Modern magic met with the same opposition in Europe. The French Academy, claiming, as usually, to be supreme authority in all matters of science, declined, nevertheless, to decide the question. Arago, who read the official report before the august body, closed with the words, I do not believe a word of it. But his colleagues remembered, perhaps, that their predecessors had once or twice before committed themselves grievously. Had not the same academy pronounced against the use of quinine and vaccination, against lightning rods and steam engines? Had not Reamur suppressed Pisonel's essay on corals because he thought it was madness to maintain their animal nature? Had not his learned brethren decreed in 1802 that there were no meteors, although a short time later two thousand fell in one department alone? And had they not, more recently still, received the news of ether being useful as an anesthetic with scorn and unanimous condemnation. Perhaps they recalled Dr. Hare's assertion that our own Society for the Advancement of Useful Knowledge had, in 1855, refused to hear a report on spiritualism, preferring to discuss the important question why do roosters always crow between midnight and one o'clock? At all events, they heard the report and remained silent. In the same manner, Alexander von Humboldt refused to examine the question. This indifference did not, however, check the growth of spiritualism in France, but its followers divided into two parties. Spiritualists, under Reveil, who called himself Allan Kardec, and Spiritists, under Pierre. The former died in 1869, after having seen his Livre d'Esprit Esprit reappear in fifteen editions. To seal his mission, he sent, immediately after his death, his spirit, to inform his eager pupils, who crowded round the dead body of their leader, of his first impressions in the spirit world. If the style is the man, the style c'est l'homme, no one could doubt that it was his spirit who spoke. Perhaps the most estimable high priest of this branch of modern magic is a well-known professor of Geneva, Rosinger, a physician of great renown and much beloved by all who know him. He is, however, a rock of offense to American spiritualists because he has ever remained firmly attached to his religious faith and admits no spiritual revelations as genuine which do not entirely harmonize with the doctrines of Christ and the statements of the Bible. Unfortunately, this leads him to believe that his favorite medium, a young lady enjoying the mystic name of Libna, speaks under the direct inspiration of God himself. In England, the new magic has not only numerous, but also influential adherents, like Lord Lytton and the Darwinian Wallace, papers like the Star, and journals like the Cornhill Magazine support it with ability 
and names like home in former years and newton in our day who not only reveal secrets but actually heal the sick have given a new prestige to the young science the works of howitt and dr ashburner of mrs morgan and mrs crossland have treated the subject under various aspects and in the year eighteen seventy one crookes a well-known chemist investigated the phenomena of holmes revelations by means of an apparatus specially devised for the purpose the result was the conviction that if not spiritual they were at least not produced by any power now known to science quarterly journal of science july eighteen seventy one in germany the new magic has been far less popular than elsewhere but in return it has been there most thoroughly investigated men of great eminence in science and in philosophy have published extensive works on the subject which are however more remarkable for zeal and industry than for acute judgment gerster in regensburg claimed to have invented the psychography but zapari in paris and kohnfeld in berlin discovered at the same time the curious instrument known to us as planchette the most practical measure taken in germany for the purpose of ascertaining the truth was probably the formation of a society for spirit studies which met for the first time in dresden in eighteen sixty nine and purposes to obtain an insight into those laws of nature which are reported to make it possible to hold direct and constant intercourse with the world of spirits here as in the whole tendency of this branch of magic we see the workings not merely of idle curiosity but of that ardent longing after a knowledge of the future and a certainty of personal eternity which dwells in the hearts of all men the phenomena of modern magic were first imperfect wrappings against the wall the legs of a table or a chair accompanied by the motion of tables then followed spirit writing by the aid of a psychograph or a simple pencil and finally came direct spirit writings drawings by the media together with musical and poetical inspirations the whole reaching a climax in spirit photographs the ringing of bells the dancing of detached hands in the air the raising up of the entire body of a man and the musical performances without human aid were only accomplished in a few cases by specially favored individuals two facts alone are fully established in connection with all these phenomena one that some of the latter at least are not produced by the ordinary forces of nature and the other that the performers are generally in the medium always in a more or less complete state of trance in this condition they forget themselves give their mind up entirely into the hands of others the media and candidly believe they see and hear what they are told by the latter is taking place in their presence hence also the well-established fact that the spirits have never yet revealed a single secret nor ever made known to us anything really new their style is invariably the same as that in which ecstatic and somnambulistic persons are apt to speak a famous german spiritualist hornung whose faith was well known once laid his hands upon his planchette together with his wife and then asked if there really was a world of spirits 
to the utter astonishment of all present the psychograph replied no and when questioned again and again became troublesome the fact was simply that the would-be magician's wife did not believe in spirits and as hers was the stronger will the answer came from her mind and not from her husband's on the other hand it cannot be denied that media most frequently delicate women of high nervous sensibility and almost always leading lives of constant and wearying excitement become on such occasions wrought up to a degree which resembles somnambulism and may really enable them occasionally in a state of clairvoyance to see what is hidden to others it is they who are vitalized as they call it and not the knocking table or the writing planchette and hence arises the necessity of a medium for all such communications that there are no spirits at work in these phenomena requires hardly to be stated even the most ardent and enthusiastic adherents of the new magic cannot deny that no original revelation concerning the world of spirits has yet been made but that all that is told is but an echo of the more or less familiar views of men it is far more interesting to notice with coleman the electric and hygroscopic condition of the atmosphere which has evidently much to do with such exhibitions the visions of hands arms and heads which move about in the air and may occasionally even be felt are either mere hallucinations or real objective appearances due to a peculiar condition of the air and favorably interpreted by the predisposed mind hence also our own continent is for its superior dryness of atmosphere much more favorable to the development of such phenomena than that of europe spiritualists in the old as in the new world are hopeful that the new magic will produce a new universal religion in a better social order in this direction however no substantial success has yet been obtained outsiders had expected that at least an intercourse with departed spirits might be secured and thus the immortality of man might be practically demonstrated but this also has not yet been done what then can we learn from modern magic only this that there are evidently forces in nature with whose character and precise intent we are not yet acquainted and which yet deserve to be studied and carefully analyzed modern magic exhibits certain phenomena in man which are not subject to the known laws of nature and thus proves that man possesses certain powers which he fails or does not know how to exert in ordinary life where these powers appear in consequence of special preparation or an exceptional condition of mind they are comparatively worthless because they are in such cases merely the result of physical or mental disease and we can hope to profit only by powers employed by sound men but where these powers become manifest by spontaneous action apparently as the result of special endowment they deserve careful study in all the respect due to a new and unknown branch of knowledge nor must it be overlooked that although modern magic as a science is new most of the phenomena 
upon which it is based, were well known to the oldest nations. The Chinese, who seem to have possessed all the knowledge of mankind, ages before it, could be useful to them, or to others, and to have lost it as soon as there was a call for it, had, centuries ago, not only moving tables, but even writing spirits. Their modern planchette is a small board, which they let float upon the water, with the legs upward. They rest their hands upon the ladder, and watch the gyrations it makes in the water. Or, they hold a small basket with a camel's hair brush attached to one end, suspended over a table upon which they have strewn a layer of flour. The brush begins to move through the flour and to draw characters in it, which they interpret according to their alphabet. The priests of Buddha in Mongolia also have long since employed moving tables, and for a good purpose, usually to detect thieves. The lama, who is appealed to for the purpose, sits down before a small, four-legged table, upon which he rests his hands, whilst reading a book of devotion. After perhaps half an hour, he rises, and as he does so, holding his hand steadily upon the table, the table also rises and follows his hand, which he raises till hand and table are both level with his eyes. Then the priest advances, the table precedes him, and soon begins to move at such a rate that it seems to fly through the air, and the lama can hardly follow. Sometimes it falls down upon the very spot where the stolen goods are hidden. At other times it only indicates the direction in which they are to be sought for, and not unfrequently it refuses altogether to move, in which event the priest abandons the case as hopeless. Nord Bien, April 27, 1853 here also it is evident that the table is not the controlling agent, but the will of the lama, whom it obeys by one of those mysterious powers, which we call magic. It is the same force which acts in the divining rod, the pendulum, and similar phenomena. The name of medium is an American invention and is based upon the assumption that only a few favored persons are able to enter into direct communication with spirits, who may then convey the revelations they receive to others. They are generally children and young persons, but among grown men also certain constitutions seem to be better adapted to such purposes than others. In almost all cases, it has been observed that the electric condition of the medium is a feature of greatest importance. The more electricity he possesses, the better is he able to produce magic phenomena, and when his supply is exhausted by a long session, his power also ceases. Hence, perhaps, the peculiar qualification of children while, on the other hand, the fact that they not unfrequently are able to answer questions in languages of which they are ignorant proves that they also do not themselves give the reply, but only receive it from the questioner and state it as it exists in the mind of the latter. Hence also the utter absurdity of so-called spirit paintings and still worse, of poetical effusions like Mr. Harris's Lyric of the Golden Age, in eleven thousand four hundred and thirty wretched verses. For what the circle 
does not know individually or collectively the medium also is not able to produce this truth is made still more evident by the latest phenomena developed in spiritualistic circles the so-called trance speaking which may be heard occasionally in new york circles and which requires no interposition of a medium for here also we are struck by the utter absence of usefulness in all these revelations the inspired believers speak they recite poetry but it remains literally vox et preteria nihil and we are forcibly reminded of the words of aeschylus who already said in his agamemnon verse one thousand one hundred twenty seven quote, did ever seers afford delight the long-practised art of all the seers whom ever the gods inspired revealed naught but horrors and a wretched fate among the media of our day home is naturally facile princeps a scotchman by birth he claims that his mother already possessed the gift of second sight and that in their home near edinburgh similar endowments were frequent among their neighbors at the age of three years he saw the death of a cousin who lived in a distant town and named the persons who were standing around her couch he conversed constantly in his childish way with spirits and heard heavenly music his cradle was rocked by invisible hands and his toys came unaided into his hands when ten years old he was taken to an aunt in america in whose house he had no sooner been installed than chairs and tables beds and utensils began to move about in wild disorder till the terrified lady sent the unlucky boy away attending once an exhibition of table moving he fell into fits and suddenly became cataleptic during the paroxysm he heard a summoning then the spirits announced the wrecking of two sailors the table began to rock as in a storm the whistling of the wind through the tackle the creaking of the vessel and the dull heavy thud of the waves against her bows all were distinctly heard and finally the table was upset while the spirits announced the name and the age of the perishing seamen from that day home carefully cultivated his strange gifts and developed what he considered a decided talent for reading the future as a young man he returned to europe and soon became famous florence was for a time the principal stage of his successes here he not only summoned the spirits of the departed but was raised by invisible powers from the ground and hovered for some time above the heads of his visitors the superstitious italians finally became excited and threatened him with death from which a count branici saved him at great personal peril in naples the spirits suddenly declared their intention to leave him on february tenth eighteen fifty six and to remain absent for a whole year they did so and during the interval home enjoyed better health than ever in his life in rome he became a catholic and good pio nonno himself offered him his crucifix to kiss with the words that is the only true magic wand unfortunately this was not holmes view always at least we find him in eighteen sixty four in the same city in conflict with the papal police who ordered him to seize all intercourse quote, with higher as well as with lower spirits 
end quote, and finally compelled him to leave the Eternal City. He then claimed publicly what, it must not be forgotten, he had consistently maintained from the beginning of his marvelous career that he was the unwilling agent of higher powers, which affected him at irregular times, independent of his will, and often contrary to his dearest wishes. It must be added that he gave the strongest proof of his sincerity by never accepting from the public pecuniary compensation for the exhibition of peculiar powers. End of section two.